Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Invest in people, right? You're going to see deals left and right, but you can make anything. You can make swampland in Florida look good on a kind of broke format. You have to invest in people. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as 100 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Whitney Sowell from LifeBridge Capital. You are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm happy today to have Buck Joffrey with me. He's a surgeon turned real estate professional with nearly a billion dollars in real estate transactions, including 400 million in current real estate assets under management. He's also a financial educator focused on alternative assets. He runs a fantastic community that I'm part of called Wealth Formula Network, and he's a host of the Wealth Formula podcast as well. Buck, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's great to have a conversation. Usually how I like to start is just if you can talk about, I know you were a surgeon and I know your backstory, but my listeners would love to hear how you went from medical school to what you're doing now, which is investing and, and helping others learn how to uh, invest in syndications. Yeah. So uh, I would say that I, uh, I went on the journey that a lot of people who certainly listen to my show went through, which is they were good students. And at some point, if you're a good student in high school and college and there's an inflection point where you say, well, what are you going to do? You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to, what are you going to do? And uh, for me, 
I decided to become a doctor because I liked science and I thought it sounded cool to be a doctor and a surgeon and all that stuff. So I did that and I went through medical school. Um, and again, in medical school, I wanted to, wanted to be at the top of the pecking order. So I uh, did a neurosurgery and then I did head and neck surgery and then I plastic surgery. So I did all this stuff. And then for me, it sounds sort of a uh, not real, but really was one book that really just electrified me, which was I had just gotten married in a honeymoon uh, in Mexico. On the way back, I was looking for a book to read in an airport in, in Puerto Vallarta, of all places. And there were only like three books there. And one of them was Cashflow Quadrant from Robert Kiyosaki. I never heard of Robert Kiyosaki, nor had I really contemplated in any kind of investment or anything. But I read it because there was nothing else to read. But it, it was really a life-changing thing for me. The life-changing element is not that, hey, I, I'm going to become a real estate guy now. The weird thing for me was up to this point in my life, I never really contemplated the idea of entrepreneurship in any sort of way. In other words, going back to that inflection point, you're an A student, you get positive feedback constantly, and you're like, okay, so what can I do next? And the next thing is always something else in academics, some kind of professional school, et cetera. On the other hand, if you're, you know, not very good at school, you start looking for alternatives, right? And you're more likely yeah. to become an entrepreneur. You know, Robert Kiyosaki says A students work for, or what, C, A students work for C students, B students work for the government, right? And, you know, Tom Wheelwright, was, who's my CPA and Robert's CPA, said the, the same thing. And I said, you know, one thing, Tom, is that, the reason that the C students succeed and they become entrepreneurs is because they had nothing else to lose, right? The A students had all the, everything to lose by not staying on the track and getting the positive feedback. So anyway, long story short, I ended up getting inspired in entrepreneurship, making a, a fair amount of money uh, through medical businesses, et cetera, and then started buying real estate. And then the next thing you know, I just started thinking, gosh, you know, the re the real estate thing is I'm really kind of excited about and uh, making more money that way than I was as a as a physician. And I wanted to teach others to do it. I started my podcast without any intention of starting our private equity group, as you are part of, as you know. And then one day it just dawned on me, you know what? Uh, I, you know, I, I should just put up something in there uh, on the website called Investor Club for accredited investors. See who's interested. Well, now there's like, 2,000 accredited investors in that group. And our private equity group now is you know, doing $100 million a year. So that's how it worked. I mean, fundamentally, it's just opportunity, uh, you, you know, entrepreneurs in general, and I am very much an entrepreneur. And I discovered that later in life, entrepreneur who happens to be a doctor. And you look at where the inefficiencies in the system are, you look at where the opportunities are, what the needs are. And if they align, then you've got a business. And that's essentially what I've done. So how do you get the confidence? You know, you're a high paid professional, right? You're a doctor. And in our community, um, we have a lot of high paid professionals who maybe want to ditch the W-2. And we have not so high paid professionals who want to get out of the W-2. So how did you get the confidence to give up that salary, give up that high earnings and, and take the jump into real estate? The reason I truly believe that that's the case is that I think at the end of the day, there is an element of genetics involved. My dad's an entrepreneur. My dad's a real estate guy. And I'll tell you why I think there's a genetic component to entrepreneurship. 
So you and I both know uh, a guy by the name of uh, George Newberry. Absolutely, yep. yeah. So I don't know if George, you've had George on your show, but you should. George is a fantastic guy, and he's a very trustworthy guy, and uh, I just really am a big fan. He's also one of the he's one of the most prolific entrepreneurs I know. He's smart, and he takes every risk on earth. And you just wonder what the guy's doing. And he's had some big falls. He's had some big. He goes up on the mountain. He falls. <laughs> that kind of thing. If you go to Argentina, there's an airport called the Jorge Newberry International Airport. And it happens to be George's uh, grandfather, who was known in Argentina as a big risk taker, as an aviator, ultimately died doing some kind of stunt in an airplane or something like that. But I tell you that kind of story just because the reality is I do think that there is something genetic about some of us who are willing to take that risk. There's no doubt about it. There is something within you that pushes you to be an entrepreneur. I think some people do it without that gene, but it certainly makes it easier for some of us who do have that gene, easier in the sense of actually making the jump, not in terms of success. But I, I think that's what it is. That makes sense. I just It's always amazing to me when you see somebody like you who had it made in quotation marks with big salary and, and all that, and then you completely pivot and, and go do something else. And you're clearly you've had success in it. So it's just it's just interesting to see how how you can change careers. And I've changed careers several times, but each time I kind of made sure the other the next career was was on the horizon and working before I made the full jump. I mean, I think I certainly kind of, you know, my first businesses really were medical, right? So it was just out of training. So they were practices that I ran like businesses. And um and so that certainly made it easier. And also my first job training was, you know, I worked for a big conglomerate cosmetic surgery company, and I decided to start my own thing. And they found out they fired me. So getting fired also helpful, helpful too, because then you don't really have anything else to lose, right? That happened when I was fairly young. I mean, I was just out of training. I was 34. That's not, that's terrible, right? You're 34, you're just out of training. And I had one child and she was, you know, just not even a year old. I had very little to lose. Right. And yeah. that's that makes things so much easier. <laughs> so. That's true. When when you're when you're pushed a little bit, that does help. And then when you have a family to support, you have you have no choices. That that's that's accurate. Yeah. 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 So I want to pivot a little bit to talking about your syndications and, and some of those things. So you know I invest with, with you and and Western Wealth Capital is a, is a great syndicator, I think, but they specialize in forcing appreciation and kind of maximizing the tax benefits. Can you talk a little bit about that? model and why that's such a powerful way to invest in uh, passive syndications? You know, everything that, that I'm involved with in our group, ultimately, something that I would call a value add opportunity. So there is this sort of notion, going back to Robert Kiyosaki's books that, you know, you buy like some houses and they all cash flow. And before you know it, you're independent, you know, you've replaced your income. And, and for the most part, that Robert doesn't even really believe that, you know, it, because it, if you look at it that way, it would just take so much money to even get to that point where you're starting to cash flow enough to replace your income. So what we're, what we're focused on is uh, a couple of principles, whether, no matter whether it's with my partners, you know, I, I am a general partner at Western Wealth Capital, also with Turo, with Dante Andrade, and, and, and we also have our own uh, subsidiary doing some self-storage. But in all cases, the goal is not to buy and hope. The goal 
is to buy something and to force equity. And you force equity by in commercial property, and it's it's just math. It's just math, right? You increase net operating income. If you increase net operating income, you increase the value of a property. It's that simple. And so that's the beauty and the simplicity of it. Now, I say it's that simple. The math is really simple. In order to make it happen, what you have to have is very, very good operations. So you can have, let's just talk about Western Wealth. So since you brought it up, or, you know, what typically do is we'll buy a property that is really neglected, the worst, the better, in terrible shape, things that, you, you know, you don't want to touch. But they're not D-class properties in the sense that they're in the ghetto and no one's going to pay. They're just poorly operated properties, right? Somebody may have bought it 30 years ago and they're just cash flowing. They don't care. They're running at 100%. Tenants complaining, you know, they don't care. And But what we know, and, and we know this uh, because of our modeling, um, our CEO, Janet, is, you know, is a computer scientist. We know what we can do to each one of these properties. So if we identify something that's underperforming because of, you know, management or because it just needs to be upgraded and it hasn't been upgraded in 30 years and we know what we can get in terms of rent, it becomes a matter of just popping in numbers saying you put in this much money, we'll increase net operating income by that much. And we know that, say we have a cap rate of five, that means that, you know, essentially it's a $20 to you increase $1, you know, and, and you've got a $20 increase in the value of, of the property. If you do that, the math becomes pretty easy. So then you really have to do is you have to pick people who can execute. So Western Wealth Capital, what we typically do is we buy things that we think has a lot of meat on the bone. Like you can, you know, a great example of something that people don't even think about. Everybody thinks about washers and dryers, which are gold for sure. But, you know, dog fences, right? Dog fences. It's like, who even thinks of dog fences, right? But, uh, you know, you add, um, it costs you maybe $1,000 to put one in. And guess what? You could probably charge an extra $50 uh, to $75 a month because you have dog fence in your unit. Well, do the math there. You've made up your money in a year. But more importantly, you do the math on the 20 to 1. How much did you increase the value of that property? So, what we're trying to do is we're uh, nickeling and diming our way up to significant increases in equity. And so does it work? Well, you know, we have, you know, we have 32 divestments, average annualized return of over 30%, you know, nothing worse than 11, 12% to date. And it, so it does work and it continues to work. And, you know, our goal is to always outperform pro forma. But again, it is never, we're never going to buy something and just wait. Now, the other concept that I think is really important, and Jim, as you know, with Western Wealth, this is a big part of it, is you talked about how with the Kiyosaki model and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, you buy these houses, you get a hundred bucks from each one, and before you know it, you got so much and you're replacing. The challenge is, say you're trying to replace, uh, you know, a half million bucks as a, as a surgeon, whatever. How much are you going to have to invest in order to get a half million bucks of passive income on a coupon? I mean, she's on a coupon. You're probably looking at 5% at best, mm -hmm. right? So you're looking at investing 10 million bucks. That's for somebody who makes a half million dollars a year, which is still a lot. $10 million of investing is a lot of investing, right? It's going to take a long time. So what we try to do is we say, okay, if we can't do it that way, 
let's figure out how we can make this happen quicker. So instead of you having to constantly earn more money invest, what if we could make it so that we can recycle your capital? So that's where the concept of velocity comes out. So every time for Western Wealth Capital in our modeling, you, what you see is that in, in two or three years, we're trying to get at least 50% of your initial capital that you invested out of the deal so that you can redeploy it into something else. So now you're not you're not just waiting for you know your fruit to come to bear, so to speak. You're taking some chips off the table, the initial capital, and you're putting it somewhere else. Now you've got the same capital, but now you're invested in, in two deals. And then that happens again. You invest in more. So we have one guy, we, we always think, you know, we talk about these things. Early investor in Western Wealth Capital who started out at 750 grand total, right? He did like 50, 75 a deal. Got up to the point where he's, uh, seven, he, his total in was 750, but his, his principal is now worth $4 million. So this is conceptually, again, it's recycling capital. You take refis, put it back in the deal. You take divestments, you put it back in the deal. You keep doing that and you're recycling capital. Now this guy doesn't put any more out-of-pocket money in deals. He doesn't do it. He's done, right? He's already got his chips off the table. He's just recycling over and over and over. He's still doing it. So, you know, again, past performance does not indicate future <laughs> earnings as they right. and all that. But I'm just, I'm trying to, uh, the two issues that I'm bringing up specifically are value add. It's not buy and hope. You have to find somebody who's going to really, really uh, execute. And, you know, we're really about executing on speed in Western Wealth Capital. Um, because we that's the variable that everybody ignores, right? If you can do the same thing that somebody models out on five, if you can do it in two and a half, your you know, your returns are gonna be double, right? And and it sounds simple, but nobody really thinks about it that way in this world. So that's what we're doing. So speed, uh, speed equity, uh, you know, velocity of money and value, value add. Yeah, I, I love that, and I love the buy and hope because uh, that that just reminds me of my old days in the in the stock market, right? Because yeah. that's basically what you're doing. And the other thing that when I started investing with Western Wealth that I that I really liked was the washer dryer, and then and then the pet fence. Because when I used to own my own properties, I would always do the calculation of well, if I put thousand dollars into a pet fence and charge fifty bucks, how long is that going to take to pay me back? But that's not the way that you need to look at it when you're doing multifamily. Is you look at what did that add to the value of the property. And that was really eye-opening for me when I when I kind of learned that and learned that I was kind of doing it wrong. So that that is a super um, interesting way to invest, and I love the velocity part. So you also mentioned that you're doing self storage. Mm -hmm. How does that relate? So can you do the same thing with self storage that you're doing with multifamily? Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times it's about creating more efficiency. It's about turning like a you know a parking lot into more units. I mean, it's just looking for opportunity, right? The other thing that's great about self storage, um, as you as you may know, is that the you know you you end up nickel nickel and diming people to death, right? Because if you're paying if they're paying a hundred and fifty bucks, or say you know just, oh, let's just use hundred bucks for something, and you add six dollars, <laughs> you know to to their rent. That's a 6% rent increase, right? And you can do that. None of these are like, usually these are not kind of month to month. Before you know it, they're up to 112 bucks. You raised to 12%. And you're sort of testing the boundaries of when somebody's feeling annoyed enough where they're going to pull all this stuff out. 
So there's that element, but there is certainly value add as uh, we've done in, in, in the opportunities that we've done. Usually we focused on two things. One is you have underperforming mom and pop shops that aren't pushing rents and they have opportunities. Maybe they have like, you know, maybe they're using something for, you know, boat storage and which isn't paying as much as if they built something more simple storage. So you look at converting some of those things. We actually are also specifically looking at niche changing places that are kind of dumpy into nicer places because we, it matters. Um, people don't think it matters, but it does. So we try to think about trying to play, make places into sort of more A-class storage. Um, the nice thing about that too is the other strategy that we can do at scale, whether it's in self-storage or you know what we're doing in apartments is that, as you know, we we buy quite a bit, and so if you're also if you have a number of properties in the same area, then you know you can sell them for a premium to a large institution. So there's lots of different ways to uh, to make money in this space, but yeah, self storage is really no different. Well, since we talked about multifamily and self storage, I'd I'd like to also talk about ATMs because I know you're involved in those. Mm-hmm. And when we first met. You weren't a huge fan of ATMs, but mm-hmm. I think you've you've kind of evolved your thinking on those, and I've I've invested in those as well. So I'd kind of like to hear your your take on ATMs. Yeah, so I still don't think that ATMs are a replacement for what we're doing on the real estate side. Here, here's the thing: it depends what you're looking for. ATMs, the way we do it, and this is a Reggie five hundred six C offering, so you know I can talk about it more freely, but you know, it's for accredited investors only. It's typically like a seven-year program. It's a seven-year program and return of capital would be like around four years and then the next three years are profit. So to me, and then at the end of the seven years, you don't have anything anymore. You, you just have your profit. So you can't look at this like at real, like real estate. I've seen some people, you know, advertise this and I sort of take issue with the way they, you know, talk about it because I think it's misleading. It is very high at cash on cash, right? It, it's it's 20, you know, maybe a 24 to 25% cash on cash. But you can't look at something that depreciates down to zero as a cash on cash deal. And so I take issue with some of the, some of the advertising that I've seen happen for that. And that way, now the annualized return on this ends up being a double-digit average annualized return if you basically look at it over seven years. So it's probably best to look at it through the lens of an internal rate of return, right? Now, so I like it for that purpose. If you're looking at a high IRR, you're really focused on getting your money back and and that kind of thing. There's some value to it. But, you know, the the annualized returns are still low double digits, which in real estate, we would generally not consider a big success, as you know. Right. We're, we're, our performers are 17 percent. I mean, we're, you know, we're averaging over 30. So why would I pivot towards this and say, yeah, this is something I've done? And, and frankly, I, you know, I have a seven figure investment in ATMs myself, too. Why is that? Well, there's one more element to it right now that is very beneficial and that is bonus depreciation right so for somebody like me who has a significant amount of passive income coming in from businesses and other investments one additional benefit is that 
buy a $52,000 half unit or $104,000 uh, unit, which is, represents six ATM machines, I can essentially write off that investment, right, in the first year. So if I've got, say, for example, I own, and I don't, um, but I know some others in our group who do own a surgery center, right? And I have a surgery center that you know, that's passive income, and it's making, um, let's say it's making $300,000 a year for me. So that would be ordinary income, but it's passive. And so, again, I'm no CPA, but I have a good one. And I can buy three units, $300,000 of, of ATMs, and offset that passive income. So now I'm not paying, you know, I'm not paying taxes on that income I just uh, made, my passive income. So when you put together that additional element, it becomes very attractive for me. And that's personally, that's why I have invested in them. And so I, uh, I and, and frankly, I think that's probably the best use of them. Now, there is a lot of other things that I think are useful. I do think there's a certain hedge element to it. I was impressed by the fact that even through the, the pandemic, there was never missed payments. So there is a lot of those other elements. Of course, the risk, the major risk on these things, if any significant risk exists, is somehow that there's an end to cash, right? I mean, that's the biggest risk. And I looked into that quite a bit. The calculus that I use there is, do I think, do I have reason to believe that cash will come to an end in, in the United States before I get my capital back out of this deal? That's really the way I'm looking at it. And for right. me, the tax equivalent of, of capital return is at three years. There's no legislation right now. There's no, no, you know, essentially no talk about eliminating cash. That's uh, something to me that in three to four years is extraordinarily unlikely, and therefore I'll invest on it. Now, if I feel like that becomes a topic that is real, then I think then we stop. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, 
we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. The way I've been looking at ATMs is if I wanted to go in at 104000 to buy a full set, I could get, take my HELOC or the cash value from my life insurance, pay for the ATMs, take the distributions I get from the ATMs. And, and like you said, it would be paid off in just over four years. And then have I just created cash from nothing, like an asset yeah. out of nothing? I mean, that's how I'm looking at it. Yeah. I think in Wealth Formula Banking dot com i think we might have posted that video if not you know let me let me know i can try to get it to you but rod and christian at old formula banking they basically had done this you know this video showing the returns on something like that if you use cash value life insurance to amplify it and the returns were off the charts right i mean the irrs were like 35 percent. i don't i don't remember what they were but they were almost they didn't even look real Right. I've been trying to think of a way to knock holes in this in this idea of using either the life insurance or the HELOC to do it. But it, it basically, after four years, your loan's paid off, there's no interest left, and you're left with basically, you know, seventy five thousand of cash that came came from nowhere. So you created an asset out of nothing, which which I like, obviously. So you are a big proponent of the permanent life insurance with the wealth formula banking, as you talked about. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about do you use that? in specific ways or more generally, whenever maybe you don't have cash, you just dip in and say, hey, I'm going to invest passively in an apartment building and you go into your life insurance. And is that what you do or how are you using that? Yeah, the major strategy there is that you you have this cash value that's growing. Maybe I think mine grows at like five and a half percent compounding. But the major difference between borrowing against that and borrowing against the HELOC is that, you know, if you borrow in the HELOC, the money's not growing any there's no money there right with cash value life insurance what happens is that you have cash value that's growing at a you know a certain clip um and then you borrow that money but you're not borrowing your own money you're you're essentially borrowing from the general ledger of the insurance company and they are effectively giving you a collateralized loan but the difference is since your money is growing at five and a half percent uh, compounding and you're borrowing and you're borrowing at a simple interest rate. So even if it's the same rate, which right now, actually, we have a, a series of uh, lending companies that we have a list of. I sent it out today, Jim, in the Wealth Formula Network, I think, was that banks that alone collateralized like, you know, like three and a half percent. And so you have not only the you have not only the arbitrage of simple versus compounding interest, which is huge in and of itself over time. But you're also, if you're you're growing at five and a half percent compounding, and then you're borrowing at three and a half, you know, even four percent simple interest. I mean, those numbers actually become pretty staggering over the course of five, six years if you look at the leverage. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I did get that email today. I'm definitely going to look into that because that's a better deal right than than borrowing direct yep. from the uh, insurance company because that's at five or six percent yeah yeah it's definitely i've heard as low as i haven't looked into those myself specifically yet but but i've heard as low as three percent wow that, that's great can you talk a little bit about how to vet a sponsor because in your community and i really like this about it it's no like and trust and you repeat that a lot and i i believe in that as well so can you talk about for a passive investor who maybe doesn't have your network, but is either just getting started or has been into it for a little while, 
how do you or how would you recommend they vet a sponsor and make sure that they can build that relationship and know, like, and trust and get comfortable enough to then send them a, a wire for 25 or 50 grand? Well, you know, I think it, it, everybody has their own level of comfort with due diligence and, and vetting. I'll tell you, you know, we have some people in our group that are particularly the larger investors who are investing, you know, seven figures, um, you know, per year, or in some cases, even per deal. They are making the effort to, you know, fly out and visit the operators and meet them in person and walk deals and looking for audited financials and, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, right? Um, and that's certainly one option. I do think that in general, what I would say is the no like, and trust part is, is important. And you may not get to know the operator themselves, but, you know, like, for example, Jim, if you, if you've had certain, if you've had luck with a certain operator over the years and friends of yours say, Hey, Jim, you know, what, what do you think? And, you know, you've already had some good experiences with them. Uh, that's, that's a good way to sort of do the surrogate, no like, and trust. Right. But the next thing is like, I think it's all about understanding what's the track record because really you don't have a whole lot else to go on. You know, a lot of companies will and tell you about their one success or whatever. But as you know, with Western Wealth Capital, every time we'll do a webinar for our private group, you'll see every divestment that we've had, right? Every one, every 30, 32 divestments. And you want to know good and bad. It doesn't mean that everything has to go, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, everything crushed it, but you want to know what happened. And if things didn't go well, you want to know, you want a sponsor to explain uh, be able to explain why and, and what they learned and that kind of thing. So for me, those are the big things is, is no like and trust for sure. But, you know, like and trust, you know, maybe your brother-in-law, but your brother-in-law may not have a clue what he's doing. He may think he has an idea what he's doing, but until he's proven a track record, you can't trust him. So those are the things I look at. I mean, with Western Wealth Capital, before I was a general partner, I was an investor uh, myself passively and um, had frankly just learned about them through other investors early on about how they were just how they were just really outperforming pro formas left and right and that they like and worked and stuff. So I looked into them myself because people I knew were having very good experiences with them. And then ultimately the relationship grew to, you know, be, me becoming a partner. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, that, that's kind of how I look at it too, is I, I go to my community, people that I know, like, and trust, and, and it's transitive, right? So that works. And then the other thing is track record and experience are are key because these are such long-term investments. Yeah. And speaking of the long-term, I have a couple more questions I, I wanted to wanted to get your uh, idea on. And, and one is is bridge debt because mm -hmm. that, that has be, been becoming something that people are talking about more as, as syndicators are using bridge mm -hmm. debt and interest-only payments. And I've heard people talk about you know the possibility of this, this bridge debt turning into a problem down the road if interest rates start rising and people can't refinance into lower interest, that their deals won't work as they had in pro forma. So can you talk about how do you see bridge debt? Is that an issue or is that overblown? So when, when do you use bridge debt, right? Again, this goes to understanding and trusting the, the operator. We recently, Jim, I don't know if you were part of our, our recent Turo opportunity or not, but the you know we did use bridge debt there. And the reason we did is because vacancy was really low 
and it was not going to qualify, you know, for a reasonable uh, debt with the conventional Fannie Freddie loan. So we did do a bridge and we did a bridge. First of all, bridges are actually a pretty good deal right now, right? I mean, we're, it's crazy to even think about bridge debt coming in around, you know, 5%, that kind of thing. But that's, that's kind of what we're seeing. So they're, they're not, they're not bad. But I think for us, the situation was, we had a very clear mission there, right? We knew that property, that we can make that property perform well. How do we know? Because we own the property, literally like two properties over, we own that property and we're crushing it. We know that market, we know that submarket, we know that block <laughs> really well, right? And we knew this property to the point where we're like, we, we feel like we understand why it's not performing. And it's a very, very high level of confidence that we can make it perform. And so for us, it made a lot of sense to use bridge uh, because we can get into the building, we can turn it around quickly and we can refi. And in our case, if we refi, if we refi with the same company that we have the bridge with, we don't even pay a prepayment penalty. So it's, it actually works out pretty well. That's great. When you're looking to invest in passively a apartment deal, what are a couple of the, the metrics that you focus on as a passive investor? I know it's different when you're on the GP side because you're yeah. focusing on everything. But if you're just investing passively, are there a couple of metrics that you pick out and say, I'm going to make sure to check on these? Yeah. So I think that... Um, the hard part about that question, Jim, is it depends on who the who the operator is. So if if it's if it's Western Wealth Capital, it's it's hard to predict which ones are are going to be the home run and which one's going to be a double. But for me personally, because of my appetite for profits and increased risk, I want the one that's the ugliest deal in the room. That's the one that I'm going to go for because I know I have confidence in my my operator. I think that it's very difficult on the passive side if you're trying to do due diligence in both the group and the deal at the same time. It's really hard. I think you have to get past the, you know, trusting the operator, and then what you feel about the operator and what they can do and what they, you know, what you're confident in what they can do, right? So for me on the Western Wells side, I know that the uglier the deal, in my opinion the bigger the profit we're, there's potential to make. As a passive investor, that's what I'm interested in. In general, if it's outside of things that I'm personally a part of, and, and you know, what else do I invest in that's outside of our group? Not a lot, but when I do, it, usually I'm investing not so much in project, but I'm investing in people, right? A good example is you know, in our group, we had the, uh, we had the you know, friends and family thing on, on the game Infinite Fleet. Right. I don't remember that. And that's yep. just because I know Samson Mao. Now I think that's a Reg D 506C and it's out there and, and it's like, you know, it's basically cost three times as much as what we paid initially. Right. But I don't know a darn thing about games. I really don't in these games. But what I do know is, you know, Samson Mao is genius and and his tremendous track record, not only uh, with Blockstream and Bitcoin but also in the gaming world, right? So I heard that story and the, the and, and so I thought enough of it to invest in it myself. And actually, you know, I, I have nothing to do with it on the partnership level, but I brought it to our group as a friends and family offering initially. And I mean, we'll see what happens. But what I do know is I invested in Samson and 
and his team. Invest in people, right? You're going to see deals left and right. But you can make anything. You can make Swampland in Florida look good on a, on a bro form. You have to invest in people. Yeah, I, I like that answer. And that, that's one of the philosophies I'm doing as well is the first thing I look at is the sponsor. And then we'll look at the market and the deal and make sure it fits the parameters of, of what I'm trying to do with that, you know, that capital that I'm going to deploy. But for sure, the, uh, the sponsor is the, is the number one. Final question for you. Aside from Wealth Formula podcast, what's a really good podcast that you like to listen to? You know, the funny thing is I don't, I don't really listen to any other investing podcasts. And I'm just looking through. I like podcasts that are just kind of just like interesting information. One, one I've been listening to lately that's just, just incredible to me is this one called, the, it's a guy named Lex Friedman, F-R-I-D-M-A-N. I mean, and, and it's not, you know, it's not about investing. It's about, it's just, he's a smart guy and he has like really smart people on all the time. I like stuff like that. I like the portal, Eric Weinstein, I'm thinking about, uh, and then I've been, uh, you know, and then I listen to a bunch of, uh, obviously wealth ability is a good one. Sometimes, uh, Tom, Tom Wheelwright's podcast. That one is a financial podcast. Obviously he's my CPA as well. And then, um, and then it's a bunch of sports podcasts. So yeah, you're a Vikings fan, right? Just like me. I'm a Vikings fan for sure. Yes. Tortured Vikings fan. I get it. My, my poor son is a Vikings fan oh, now too. Okay. And it's just terrible. Well then purple insider is, is the one with Matthew Collier. I listen to that one. All, the time. all right. I'll put that one on there as well. Thank you very much for being on. If our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, Wealth Formula podcast available everywhere. Podcasts are available. Wealthformula.com is a website. Certainly uh, visit that. Lots of resources there. That's about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been a great show and I appreciate you being on. You bet, man. Take care. Well, that was a great conversation with Buck. I always enjoy talking to him and, and learning from him. The Wealth Formula Network he was talking about, that was my first community in the passive syndication world. And I really got a lot out of it. And Western Wealth that he talked about also, those are the first in syndications that I did that I felt like I did them kind of properly. The other ones were early on and I really didn't know what I was doing. But when I found Western Wealth and I found Buck's community, I really started analyzing things differently. And at the time, I didn't really analyze the deals as much but I did analyze the sponsor and that's what Buck kept hammering on during the podcast. And the concept, we keep going back to this, but the know, like, and trust. I can't say enough how important that is and also how it transfers. Since I know, like, and trust Buck, then if he has a deal that he gets through a sponsor, it's likely that I'm gonna know, like, and trust that sponsor because that transfers from Buck back to me. The buy and hope, that was really well said. I'd rather force equity than buy and hope. Buy and hope reminds me of the stock market, and that's not a place I want to be. I want real assets with real income, and you can force equity. You know, in the stock market, you're betting on what other people will think the price of that stock will be in the future. For real estate, you're betting that you can force the equity and increase the income. You're forcing appreciation rather than hoping the market will increase and give you higher asset valuation. Also, with real estate, you're going to get the increase while you're receiving the cash flow, so it's a double win. If you want more Buck, check out his podcast, Wealth Formula Podcast. It comes out every Sunday, just like passive investing from left field. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.
Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.